is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. And my name's Chris Stapley. I think somebody else is listed in the directory. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, so I don't know about you, but uh, didn't you guys have that friend growing up? Like that one guy uh, that you're like, yeah, nah, man, that's not a thing. That, I doubt it. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I, I did. I did. Um, in, in Boy Scouts, of course. Yeah. Explains a lot, I know. Um, his name was Haydu. Okay. Yeah, it was that, well, I'm, I'm not sure if that was actually how you pronounced his last name, but that's how we enjoyed pronouncing his last name. Hey, do. Really rolls off the tongue. You can give it a shot. Hey, do. Hey, do. Hey, do. Um, but it usually sounded something like, hey, do. I doubt it. Uh, it's not a thing. Um, my favorite adventure with hey, do, uh, we were on a camping trip, and we were playing night games. We were playing Capture the Flag. And so me, Haydu, and a couple of the other guys were, were like scouting out, trying to find the other, the, the other team's flag. And we were on like a little reconnaissance mission there. And so it's dark, right? And we're, and we're going into the woods so that we can avoid detection in the obvious field. Um, and so we're walking through the woods. And one of the guys pulls out a flashlight and turns it on. And Haydu's like, no, don't turn that light on. But he doesn't say it for any of the reasons that you think he might be saying it. Um, so he goes, don't, dude, don't turn that light on. I have 20-20 night vision. That's <laughs> uh, not a thing. Uh, I really doubt it. Uh, now, now, here's another important piece of the story, right? Um, Haydu 
wore glasses. And, and not just like hipster cool glasses. Like, I think if I put those on, I could see through walls, man. Um, it's like, dude, you don't even have 20-20 day vision. Like, what are you talking about, man? I, that's not a thing. Uh, but he was one of those guys who were like, no, I had it tested. Yeah, I don't think so, man. I doubt it. Um, so anyway, you know, the game goes on, and hey, dude, takes off to, to try to find the, the flag, and, and so we're running through the woods. Well, the next time I see him, he is holding a pair of broken glasses in his hand. Because as he was running through the woods, he hit face first, full force into a tree. Broke his glasses right off of his face. Uh, and to this day, uh, his, uh, his nickname remains Night Vision. Um, and actually, my dad probably is, is the favorite, it's his favorite nickname of all. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, man, I doubt it. That is not a thing. Um, and, and, and maybe I'm thinking this, uh, this interaction with, with Thomas. I'm wondering if that's how Thomas felt when the disciples came and told him about this bizarre meeting with Jesus. Uh, and maybe it was Bartholomew who, uh, who told him. You know, and Thomas was already like, Bartholomew, hey dude, Bartholomew, hey dude. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, no, Bart, that, that doesn't really sound like a thing to me. I doubt it. I doubt it, man. Um, but what exactly was it that Thomas doubted? Uh, you know, we often think that this interaction between Jesus and Thomas uh, is, is like a contest between faithful belief and skeptical doubt. However, I, I'm, I'm not so sure that's what this encounter is all about. Um, I don't really think that Thomas is doubting the miracle of the resurrection event. Um, or, or even that Jesus could have possibly won or, or like triumphed over you know, his... his uh, his foes here. Um, I think the doubt he is experiencing is disbelief in the vulnerability of a resurrected yet mortally wounded Messiah. When Jesus comes to the disciples, he doesn't show them the heads of his accusers, uh, now destroyed or begging for mercy. No. He shows them his own wounds. Jesus says, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, the typical Jewish expectation at that time was for a Messiah who would, uh, how you say, uh, um, kick some Roman tail and take names. Um, not for a Messiah that would be condemned as a heretic, beaten, rejected, betrayed, taken outside of the city. Stripped, mocked, crucified, cursed as one who hangs on a tree. Uh, this is simply not how a revolution starts, is it? Um, so I think to better understand Thomas's doubts, let's look back first at Peter's doubts. Uh, and this is in Mark 8, 
27 through 37. Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So, in this, in this interaction here, Peter starts out, he just knocks it out of the park with the whole you're the Messiah thing, right? Killing it, Peter. Way to go, man. Um, however, Peter's belief in the Messiah did not allow for suffering many things, being rejected, being killed. Um, Peter doubted that Jesus really understood the whole Messiah thing. So, Peter takes him aside, you know. Peter's going to teach him a little something-something. Uh, can you imagine that? I, I, I did. <laughs> can you imagine what it was like for Peter to rebuke Jesus? Um, and maybe it sounded a little something like this. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus, look, around here there are winners and there are losers. There are those who have all the power and those who get walked on. You're really going to lose your fan base if you keep on with all this suffering, rejected, killed talk. Uh, it's, it's almost like you're aligning yourself with a bunch of losers, sinners, sickies, and outcasts. But, I mean, really, Peter is simply stating the party line here, right? Repeating the age-old pattern of haves and have-nots. Insiders and outsiders. Accusers and victims. And it's accompanying assumption that God has blessed the haves, accepts the insiders, and needs the accusers to point out how everybody else is getting it wrong. This helps me understand Jesus' seemingly over-the-top response to Peter. Right? He calls him Satan. Dang. Uh, but the word Satan here literally means accuser. The word means accuser. Jesus is saying, no more of this. No more of this. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Uh, Jesus demonstrates in his suffering and death that he has come to put an end to our human need to scapegoat and accuse them of being the problem. Uh, on the cross, Jesus becomes the ultimate substitute, the eternal stand-in for, for whoever the powerful the insider, the moral majority 
would accuse as being a problem. Uh, Once we really get what Jesus is up to, uh, the cross means that we never again get the satisfaction of saying the name of some group of people or some particular person and saying, that's what's wrong with the world. Jesus has come to put an end to our tiny little exclusive brands of religion and politics. Jesus has to snap Peter out of his conventional wisdom, um, the conventional wisdom of being a little accuser or a little Satan, of assuming that they are the problem and once our boots are on their necks, then all will be well. On the cross, Jesus identifies himself. He substitutes himself for all the sufferings, failures, and sins of the whole world. The whole world. Jesus says, I will take their place. So whoever they is, that they for me is now Jesus. That they for us, that's Jesus. Um, I think we would be much less likely to judge, reject, exclude, or condemn if we really took this seriously. This is why Jesus does not ever ask or require that anyone thank him for dying on the cross. Um, But he does tell us very clearly to pick up our cross and go with him. Uh, He tells us to follow him into the mystery of suffering and rejection and death. Um, You know, the world has enough little accusers. It really does. doesn't need any more of them. What the world does need is way more little Christs. Way more. Uh, Those who identify with the least of these and walk alongside the other until we all get to experience resurrection together. Uh, The real mystery here is that Jesus overcomes both the way of the accuser and the hopelessness of the victim and shows us a third way. uh, A much older and much better way. Uh, The way of the Trinity. Self-giving, self-emptying love. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. Uh, Jesus shows us the way of the wounded healer. uh, The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And this, this isn't a new thing. It's not a new thing. It's a very, very old Jesus shows us the true nature of God, not an all-powerful accuser to be terrified of or a pathetic victim that can't seem to figure out what to do about the problem of evil and suffering, uh, but the truly with us God, the God who in Christ Jesus came to reveal the true heart and mind of God. With us, for us, loving us by giving God's self to us. So the unbelievable revelation was the revelation of a woundable God. Um, Not a wounded or resurrected, but a wounded and resurrected God. And Thomas was like, nah, man, that's not a thing. I don't think so. Nope. I doubt it. I really doubt it. And then on top of that, a God who shows God's wounds. A God who shows off God's wounds. 
This is the very definition of vulnerability. Um, God becoming vulnerable. A vulnerable God? And Thomas is like, nah, man, that is not a thing. I really doubt it. I really doubt it. Um, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Um, you know, and it's like Thomas is like, my God, it's true. My God, it's real. We serve a vulnerable God, and therefore we can risk being vulnerable. Uh, we can risk both at the same time, both wounded and resurrected. Um, vulnerability is allowing others to see our wounds, to come alongside the hurting and the suffering, the rejected, the confused, those that the world and religious systems have thrown out as worthless, hopeless, irredeemable, misguided, sinful, or condemned. Um, in my therapy work with families, there's no more powerful healing moment um, than when I stop being the expert uh, or, the, or the therapist who knows it all or has it all together or has all the answers. And I just look over at a hurting parent and say, Look at my hand. Look at my side. Now my boy's getting treatment too. I get it. Um, I've come to believe there is no healer who has not also learned to be vulnerable. Um, but maybe this is where we really start to doubt, right? Um, because if I'm vulnerable, Will I be safe? I don't know. I doubt it. I really doubt it. But no wounds means no resurrection. Uh, Brene Brown, probably an essential resource if we want to learn uh, to practice vulnerability, she puts it this way. To love someone fiercely, to believe in something with your whole heart, to celebrate a fleeting moment in time, to fully engage in a life that doesn't come with guarantees, these are risks that involve vulnerability and often pain. But I'm learning that recognizing and leaning into the discomfort of vulnerability teaches us how to live with joy, gratitude, and grace. Uh, by following Jesus to the cross, we allow ourselves to see our own woundedness. And through the mystery of grace and mercy, we experience new life, new depth, new insights, and unimaginable joy. We are never only resurrected or perfect, um, but we are always wounded and Wounded healers that offer to others the grace that we ourselves have received. Jesus puts it this way. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The message puts it this way. If you forgive someone's sins, they're gone for good. 
If you do not forgive sins, what are you going to do with them? Jesus is telling us we have enormous power to heal and set each other free here. Or to continue to exclude, accuse, reject, and condemn. But that's not why Jesus came into the world. Jesus came into the world to love it and save it, not to condemn it. So Jesus has told us, follow me. Jesus has said, follow me. And maybe another way to put it is, stop thanking me and start following me. Um, Stop thanking me, start following me. Heal and forgive each other's sins, suffering, hurts, and rejections. Set each other free with grace. God, you are good. And this is a great mystery. That you have made yourself vulnerable. That you are a woundable God. And that is a God that I can fall in love with. That is a God that we do not have to be afraid of. God that has fully embraced us so that we can fully embrace you. That you would uh, you would help us to start following, continue following, uh, allow our wounds to be the healing of others, uh, that we too can follow you into wounded and resurrected. In Jesus' name.